Hello, everyone, and welcome to 35mm Perspective, a podcast where we watch movies and tell you what we thought of them. My name is Jacob Coots. I am your host today, and I am joined by my co-host, Grant Vampire. Grant, <laughs> how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing good. You're in the early Halloween spirit, it sounds like, Jacob, or you imagine I am. I don't know which way that goes. Um, <laughs> I'm excited for tonight's show. Because it's going to be one of the more interesting ones that we've done, which we'll get to when we get to our review. But first, we got to move through some trailers. There was some uh, interesting movie news. Uh, Moderately important movie news. Yeah, something that people have been wondering about and they're going to be probably excited to hear more about. And then we'll move into our actual review, which this week is Ad Astra. So without too much further ado, let's roll right on into those trailers. All right, Jacob, there's a lot of trailers and a lot of movies coming out this week uh, and in the future, but we couldn't remember any of them except the one that I couldn't get off my mind for some reason, <laughs> Gemini Man, which is the new Will Smith movie where Will Smith plays an over-the-hump soldier or former assassin or something like that, and there's only one man that can beat Will Smith in an action movie, and that man is Will Smith, Ooh. because... He's fighting a younger cloned version of himself, or so it seems. It looks like there's going to be some uh, emotional impact there between him arguing with ostensibly himself, although it's, again, a clone that has been raised slightly uh, differently to how he was. Um, it's interesting because it's directed by Ang Lee, who has, you could call it an interesting repertoire. So he directed Life of Pi, um, you know, what, six years ago, maybe more now, six or so. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, the 2003 Hulk movie, and also Brokeback Mountain, <laughs> and now this sci-fi action flick. So he's got quite the repertoire. And, and clearly just has a, a pattern for making the same movie over and over, like all of those are identical, including... Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, this movie seems like the most generic action film to come out in recent years. I, I call it the, uh, I call it a not bad man. The type of movie I'll probably watch and be like, eh, not bad man. But yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I'm hoping that it'll be at least okay. Because we're a decade removed now, basically, from the, the Will Smith movie renaissance, a, a decade or more. And I mean, I remember when he dominated the box office and then he kind of fell off after Earth didn't do super well. Men in Black 3 was okay. And I mean, he's starting to make a little bit of a resurgence. Uh, Aladdin did fairly well and we'll see how this does as well. Yeah, he's been pretty quiet in the movie scene lately for one reason or another. He did some stuff with Netflix, I know. Um, but, you know, this movie has the potential to touch on some interesting things looking at a past self. So maybe there will be some. Uh, deeper thematic elements to that. But I guess we can see how that pans out on October 11th of this year. Okay. 
That was a pretty short one, but that's because we know that this bit of movie news is probably going to take a while and be big. So Sony and Marvel rolled back the big change that, you know, came out that we reported on, I think, what, two weeks ago or so? Approximately. That that Spider-Man is now back in the MCU. He is indeed back, and I really don't think this surprises anyone because these are two companies that love money, and Spider-Man makes a lot of that money, uh, especially uh, with this most recent film in Homecoming, they made over $2 billion together, so it really... I think Disney realized they needed him in their plans and saw the fans' reaction. Sony realized that some people might boycott some of their movies for this and as a result they came to terms they sort of met in the middle for the contract that both sides wanted initially again it was marvel disney making five percent of those first tickets and then all of the toy revenue and sony financed the entire film and made the 95 percent profit then disney wanted to make everything 50 50 and sony said no way and that's where the split divide happened originally. And I'm assuming right after the, the backlash and outcry from fans, they got back together, got back to the drawing board on negotiations. And right now it seems like it's a 25-75 split. So Disney makes a little bit more money, contributes to financing the film, and has creative control over that third Spider-Man film. But uh, it, it's a side, it's an agreement both sides are happy with. And I think mostly because that means more money. Yeah. And I know that there's been some speculation that the split may have even been something of a publicity stunt um, to get people even more interested and excited and keep them talking about the MCU, which I mean could stand to reason given that the uh, Infinity War storyline is over and of course people were interested in far from home but i think that people have sort of begun to check out a little bit and so because spider-man again is such a much loved hero i think there's some ideas that maybe this all came up to continue to drum up interest in in the marvel cinematic universe and particularly in spider-man which can only serve to bring both of these uh, companies much more money i know that kevin feig who is the executive director i believe of marvel said that he was real excited to have spider-man back people in the uh, sony higher ups have said something similar that they were glad that they were able to reach an agreement with disney so that spidey could stay in the mcu and again like you said it's good for both of them because it'll make them a lot of money and it's interesting because not only will there be a third spider-man movie but in the contract spider-man will also be in at least one additional marvel movie yeah, and that's something I would assume is uh, an Avengers-type film. So they were definitely forward-thinking and securing him for that role. And it's probably a movie where if this agreement goes south again, that he can be killed off or written out in some variation. Everything Disney does is calculated, obviously. So I wouldn't be surprised if this was a publicity stunt to have not only the excitement from the end credits of Spider-Man 2, Far From Home, but to have maybe this tension in real life, will he be there, will he not? Because a lot of people are a little bit hesitant, 
And although a lot of people were excited and watched Far From Home and maybe there was some excitement for Phase 4, there was also a lot of skepticism. So this could have very much been an orchestrated move on both parties' ends to not only engage their interests, but see, oh, he's not in Phase 3, but there's still more Spider-Man to come. So that keeps them going, sorry, he's not in Phase 4, but there's still more Spider-Man to come, showing that there is some continuity from the Infinity War storyline, which everyone loves so much. Yeah, and I think that it was, even if it's not a publicity stunt kind of deal, I think it's a good move on both of their parts to, again, reach this agreement. It's helpful for Disney, and it allows Sony to remove a little bit of the burden of the cost of production. But to me, it seems like what they were very clearly, you know, starting to set up with Far From Home is, again, Spider-Man is the next Iron Man kind of thing, which they kept saying over and over in the movie, which I think was taken very literally in the movie, this idea of, you know, oh, you're going to lead the Avengers next. And he, he didn't want that. And maybe ultimately the conclusion was that wasn't what Tony meant either. But I think on a more meta level, what they were kind of saying with that is he's going to be the next Iron Man as in Tom Holland as Spider-Man is going to be one of the constant threads throughout the next uh, big saga, especially since he only first appeared in Civil War, which is really when everything in the Infinity War uh, saga if you want to call it that was really starting to come to a head i mean obviously the whole infinity stones thing hadn't quite happened yet but again that was where we really started to ramp up everybody's backstory had already been completed for the most part and so they were really starting to bring it to this culmination and because we've already got spider-man's backstory he could be a good commonality throughout all of phase four and five and however much longer this next saga takes they definitely need him to be the backbone i think it's awesome that they're bringing in all of these lesser-known characters into Phase 4, but they need that that front-runner, that well-known character like a Spider-Man to draw in people who aren't as big of fans of comics. Even if someone's not a huge fan of comics, they, they know of Captain America, they know of Iron Man, and now a lot of these characters are written out of the storyline, so they need that familiar face for a lot of people, even by name. So I definitely think he's a part of their larger plans, and Sony has a lot of bargaining power there. I think they got a lot of flack for saying, for people saying they can't make a good Spider-Man movie, because their first two in the early 2000s were actually quite good. The Sam Raimi trilogy, Spider-Man 3 obviously had its flaw, um, its problems, and then the Andrew Garfield uh, series was kind of just doomed from the beginning but into the spider-verse was very good and venom despite some mixed opinions did very well at the box office so it's not like sony's incapable of making a good movie but this arrangement works out very well for both sides sony could still work on into the spider-verse stuff and disney can keep going the mcu route I wish that this deal included some type of screen time for Venom. I really would like to see Venom done well on the big screen, but unfortunately it doesn't seem like that's the case here. So who knows what the villain will be. It could be a Sinister Six type setup, or it could just be a very 
real world type Spider-Man movie where he's fighting J. Jonah Jameson. So I will be excited to see where this goes. They said that the release date for the third film is going to be in the middle of July in 2021. So less than two years away. And to have that specific of a release date, Maybe there was some publicity stunt going on, or this was a part of their initial plan, and this month or so of tension didn't offset any plans for that movie. Uh, but they, they have a hard set date of July 16th. Yeah, I saw that too, and I thought that was interesting, and I, I believe that is where some of the, I don't know if you want to call it a conspiracy theory, but where the idea that maybe there was some collusion comes from, I mean... Like we reported on before, we know that there was some pre-production work already done on the third Homecoming movie, so maybe they had some stuff ready as it was, but I don't know, between that and a couple of news outlets kind of reporting it like it had been months and months and there was so much tension, it does make me wonder if this was a publicity stunt, because I know I sent something to you that said, fans have been upset for months, I said, by months we mean two and a half weeks, because it feels like this was, you know in and out very quickly and was again brought to the forefront and the internet was angry about it and then it kind of slid under the table as the internet tends to do and they forgot about it and then right when they were forgetting about it bam we get the news that he's back in so it does feel very choreographed i guess but maybe they just you know happen to do it that quickly but like you said either way it's gonna be very interesting to see what happens there in just under two years Well, with that, Grant, I think we should jump right into our feature presentation this week, which is Ad Astra. And this is interesting because, just a little bit of foreshadowing here, our scores have the biggest discrepancy of any movie yet. That's absolutely true. So if you want to hear us maybe argue, like Siskel and Ebert talked about them in an industry talk several weeks ago, stick around. We will be right back. With more podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, your feature presentation this week, it is Ad Astra, directed by James Gray, who directed The Immigrant and The Lost City of Z prior to this. The leads were Brad Pitt as Major Roy McBride, Tommy Lee Jones as H. Clifford McBride, Roy McBride's father, Ruth Naga as Helen Lantos, Liv Tyler as Eve McBride, and Donald Sutherland as Colonel Pruitt. The budget for this movie was 80 to $100 million. We'll get into what exactly that means later. Uh, there is no post credit scene in this movie. Uh, Jacob, like we talked about, this is probably some of the biggest discrepancy that you and I have personally had in thoughts of a movie, so I'll let you take the stage on this one first. Go ahead and give me some spoiler-free thoughts on this movie. This was indeed our biggest discrepancy and i think we can agree on my first point here there is a lot of narration in this movie narration it's interspersed throughout almost like a storybook told through a very monotone lens i am pretty explicit on my dislike for narration it's not like it the whole movie's narrated but there there certainly are blips here and there and it doesn't always fit with what's happening yeah that's true i I'm not a huge fan of narration either, and there were some bits here that I didn't like, 
But on the whole, I thought it was actually... An, the way that it was done in this movie was different to most of the narration. Again, trying to spoil as little as possible. It's not your standard narration. And as such, I, uh, I like it more than I generally do. It's a much more interesting conduit for storytelling here than in any of the other films we've watched. And here, at least, it's fairly consistent. Like, it at least opened with narration and then generally speaking closed with narration so it was overarching versus again some of the films we've watched lately that just have random interspersed narration for almost no reason this this kept pace well enough that it did feel kind of like a story being told through narration which while i don't love like i said the method that they integrate it into the film with made a little bit more sense here so you see a little bit of divide there but i know this is something we we both agree on the trailer for this movie does not reveal much of the actual story i actually saw the trailer afterwards beforehand i only saw tv spots but even seeing the tv spots or the trailer afterwards it really was this Unlike most movies we've seen, there wasn't much given away as to the point or purpose or uh, deeper meaning behind this movie. No, that's true. And if I'm honest, and I complained to you about this several times, actually, I complained to a lot of people about this, is that this trailer, the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, okay, space movie, cool. I'm generally into space movies. Yeah, it looks interesting. I'll watch it. And then, you know, we see a lot of movies. We have to see at least one a week for this show. And I kept seeing this trailer over and over. Like, this was a very, very pushed movie. And as I saw that trailer more and more, I I don't know. I was getting irrationally angry over and over. Because if you've seen the trailer, there's different bits where it's like, there is a threat that could threaten all life in our solar system. And things like, we have to send you and it has to be you that goes. And initially that's like, oh yeah, good action movie. But when you watch that trailer half a dozen times, I, I don't know why, because I get that every action movie is kind of like this. I just started like leaning back in my chair going, well, like, why does it have to be only him? Like, wh why, why does he have to be the specific one to save the universe? And why does it have to be the whole solar system? Like, can it be his just like localized town, his his municipality or something? Why does it have to be the whole solar system? Why do, why do we have to keep raising the odds? But the thing I will say is that is mostly a backdrop for the story that's actually happening, which I was not prepared for. So I went in with really low expectations, and maybe that's why I like this more than I thought I would, because it wasn't the film that I expected, and the film I expected I already didn't think was going to be a good movie. So seeing that it wasn't that, maybe I was just pleasantly surprised. But no, I absolutely agree with you. The trailer is not what this movie is. It is the the backdrop, a set piece for the story. And unlike a lot of recent space blockbusters, this movie is not nearly as grounded in logic or science. It's not as accurate to current space travel. Part of it takes place in the future, but even that has some irregularities. So it's less about the the realistic grounded appeal. And it's more of a, I don't want to say action movie, but it takes more Hollywood liberties than, say, The Martian or Interstellar or Gravity, which really focused on the nitty-gritty details of what it's like to be in space and, and that sort of thing. Oh, I was going to say, that that is true for some bits. Part of the, one of the issues that I had is that it jumps around in what science it does and doesn't believe, because 
uh, I read a bunch of different articles that uh, were astrophysicists and, you know, various other people that work at NASA, people that work at various universities teaching um, physics and specific with specifically to space related. And there are some bits that they all agree on are like, yeah, that's pretty accurate. It's weird, but that's because space behaves kind of weird. And also, you know, a lot of the ways that we are taught to think about space and the ways that it acts are given to us from Hollywood or something like that. And then there are other things that are blatantly just absolutely not true. And you don't even need a scientist to tell you that. So I do take a little bit of issue with the science, but only because it's inconsistent. I think that if they had just kind of ignored it completely throughout the entire film, I don't know if it would have been better necessarily because then it's not really grounded in any sort of logic but the fact that some of it was scientifically accurate was cool but then it made the parts where it wasn't as accurate just much more fourth wall breaking i guess but that said there was a lot of outside help brought in like there were different astrophysicists from nasa that were actually brought in to read various versions of the script to check it for accuracy which is kind of cool it is cool but it just makes me wonder how much escaped and how much advice they didn't take because it's not like the whole movie was bunk and uh, that nothing was accurate but there was a lot of liberties taken and i think that for space movies in particular if you're not like star trek or star wars or something where you don't really need to go into science it, it wanted to try to be accurate sometimes and it was just very jarring and other times it was a stretch like maybe that could be true because i read also a lot of reviews afterwards but um you know it just it, it kind of threw me off and maybe it's just because i really did enjoy the ground nature of some of those other sp space blockbusters everything being just so accurate or to code and you know those are movies too so they're not perfect but uh very much more so than this one yeah and i mean sort of to that end I, like you said it and like i mentioned too some of it's grounded some of it isn't which again i don't love but they did some interesting things that i do like um in that in some of it being grounded or at least <clears throat> explained and other things not being very well explained like a lot of the technologies and stuff it's very reminiscent of 2001 a space odyssey in that way and also i mean if you've seen the trailer and you've ever seen 2001 a space odyssey you can very clearly see that the cinematography is not ripped kind of directly from 2001 but it is so heavy-handedly inspired which is okay um, and if you like the cinematography in 2001 you're going to like the cinematography here for the most part although there are little minor things where they just make it way more actiony than 2001 but it's it's generally doing a pretty good job of at least doing an impression of 2001 and so it's probably unsurprising to find that gray said he reflected a lot on 2001 during the production of ad astra and again it a lot of that comes across which is cool and the cinematography generally at least when he's trying to emulate kubrick is beautiful maybe that's just to me like Kubrick has a very specific style that you have to be into, especially in uh, 2001. So if you're not into that, you probably won't be into the cinematography here. If you were into that, there's going to be a lot of scenes and sequences that you're going to like, and then other ones that you're going to feel like are sort of out of place, which is true. That's, again, my some of my biggest gripes with this, as I've already brought up with the science, is it's just kind of a Frankenstein's monster of a lot of different things, and it tries to do a lot of stuff at one point in the film that it kind of ignores later which i don't love but the parts that it does that i like it does very well i feel like 
And in comparison to other blockbusters uh, going beyond the science, just all the space movies nowadays have very stunning visuals for the most part. Uh, Beautiful shots of space, and I saw this in IMAX, so I kind of saw a a lot more detail than a smaller screen. Um, There is one exception, which I'll talk about in the spoiler section of this review, but... Yeah, I want to see if it's the exact... Is this a special effects issue that you took? There is one very specific moment where, like, this CG looked horrific, and I want to see so bad. And you're like, is this even the same movie? The same? Did they run out of budget? Um, but that be yeah, yeah, because it is towards the end too. If we're thinking of the same moment, but outside of that, you know, this is some eye candy, and I wonder how. It's not like space is the hardest thing to capture, I guess, uh, because there is just you'd need to get a planet right and then a bunch of stars in the background, white dots. But um, I always do love the space aesthetic, so this doesn't do a bad job there. It had a big budget, so that's not surprising. Yeah. So interestingly, Jacob, you and I are not the only people divided in terms of score. This has been a very divisive movie, at least between critics and audiences. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and before I jump into that, I'm just going to say a little bit more about that big budget. You had mentioned earlier, jump from 80 to 100 million. And the reason for that is uh, upon its initial test showings, there were largely negative in nature. A lot of the audience's critics that were seeing this didn't think it was that good of a movie. So they went back and added 20 million to the budget and did reshoots. Brad Pitt was not available for any of those reshoots, perhaps working on other projects or just took his paycheck and was gone. But this movie kind of went through two phases and uh, you can even still see that maybe it didn't, it helped one group and not the other here. So critics like this movie a lot more than the audiences did, no matter which metric you look at. On Rotten Tomatoes, critics gave this an 83% and audiences had a 41% favorability rating. So audiences were almost half as bad in terms of determining if this movie was better than it is bad. And when you look at the Metacritic scores, there's not much changing there. The critics gave it an 80 on average and audiences gave it a 6 out of 10. As far as cinema score goes, it got a B-. And as we talked about, that's actually really low for cinema score. So it seemed like av- uh, the audience audience wasn't too in love with this film, but the critics found more value in it than they did. And what about you, Jacob? Are you on the side of the critics or the audience? I think based on our spoiler-free section, people can already guess, but let, let's hear your specific thoughts on rating it. This is the second week in a row I'm going against the critics, and I'm siding with the audience. I gave this movie a 4.5 out of 10 for reasons I discuss later. I could have gone lower, but it wasn't that bad of a movie. Uh, I really did not love watching it, though. What about you, Grant? So... I I had this weird conundrum while I was watching it where I don't I wouldn't say I was enjoying it per se but as a film and as somebody who who likes a lot of film I like a lot of classic film I, I again really like 2001 I didn't feel like I was enjoying myself but I was sitting there thinking like I'm gonna have to rate this like a seven and a half and then the movie ended and at that point I was like okay maybe it's a seven and I got thinking about it a little bit more and some of the inconsistencies that I had and I'm down to a six and a half I could still maybe be argued into a 
seven, seven and a half would be tougher. But at the moment, I'm sitting at a six and a half. This might be one of the few that I'm going to have to go see again or, you know, rent from Redbox or something before our next quarterly review. I think this is actually going to be one of the ones that I will ultimately probably change my score for. It's difficult because, again, like I said, the parts that I liked, it did really well. And the parts that I didn't like were kind of hit or miss. So this is definitely one of the hardest ones I've had to put a numeric rating on. Um, But ultimately, I think I'm settled on a 6.5, at least for now. We'll talk about why we gave it the ratings we did. But first, if you haven't seen this movie, pause the podcast right now. Go to your local theater. Give it a view because there's a lot to unpack. Uh, If you like spoilers, I guess you can keep watching at your own risk uh, because there is going to be a pretty long review segment here, I anticipate, and you'll get both sides, someone who liked it and someone who didn't. Uh, But pause it. We'll still be here and then hit play when you're done. Okay, so yeah, I generally did like it, but I gave you, as soon as I got out of the movie, I sent you a text that was pretty funny, a little bit patronizing of it, but I just wanted to share it, which is I said, (laughs) here's the elevator pitch for Ad Astra. Man learns to feel in space. (laughs) And that's pretty much what it is. Yeah. I mean, again, it's like we talked about, not the movie that I expected it to be. I was thinking it was going to be some big budget action movie, and it wasn't. It was a much more introspective film related to, you know, character and who you are, what you were built up to be based on you know, family and expectations and to me kind of a cautionary tale and being too dogmatic about things. And it it wasn't at all the Brad Pitt fighting people in space that we were led to believe it was, except for one real weird scene. (laughs) Well, two, I guess. Yeah, it, it... This movie had a an identity crisis. I wonder if it was because of the reshoots. I wonder if that that scene uh i guess it's spoiler the space monkey scene i wonder if that was post-production initial production uh, and they threw it in there to add some kind of drama or action element to it because the marketing department really did peg it off as an action film uh and and that's not what this movie has it doesn't have a ton of action uh, and the action scenes it does have are, are almost out of place really yeah the the monkey scene i mean i was able to make it make sense in my head if looking at it from an allegory perspective but again i don't know if i'm giving him too much credit but yeah that and the the space pirate scene both seemed a little out of place um i could believe that they were both post-production or like reshoots later because uh it's i mean like you said out of place the some of the only action scenes in the whole movie and especially the little moon rover scene i didn't realize until you just mentioned it that uh, brad pitt wasn't available for reshoots and that would have i think that scene with the space pirates actually probably would have been fairly easy to do without him actually and they could have cut everything together because they don't talk too much about it after they get to the base, do they? I, I don't remember. It's been a while, but I could totally see that being a reshoot just because 
yeah, marketing department said we need more action. On my cast notes, I actually have, speaking of space monkeys, what? Also, space pirates. What? They... (laughs) Those scenes really were two of the most bizarre, and and really a lot of uh, logical ground was lost, at least with the space pirate scene. They briefly foreshadowed that, uh, that it might happen, and of course it did, because they gave it a sentence of budget. Um, yeah, I mean, that was a real Chekhov's gun thing that they set up with uh, basically one single line right before they go, and it's like, okay, so they're going to get attacked by pirates clearly because you just mentioned it i mean and they don't do a good job of explaining why the pirates were there 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 was an article from uh esquire it was one of the ones that i read where um some astrophysicists talked about the various different scientific questions uh regarding ad astra and somehow that came up and (laughs) excuse me he pointed out that apparently there's an isotope of helium that's way more common on asteroids in the moon so like maybe pirates are there to try and illegally mine it and sell it to people but the problem is is that uh, a uh, a magazine shouldn't more cogently explain why a plot device happens or it shouldn't explain why a plot device happens more cogently than the film itself does so <laughs> well yeah and i actually read that same article uh and and if that was the case that uh, and i'm not going to give the the team that much credit because it really would have just been a sentence it, it's just like they wanted space pirates because that's a cool idea how did these space pirates get to the moon it's a little bit harder to get to space than it is to hijack something on uh, on the high seas um it, it's kind of like a, a, a free-for-all at that point in the movie and then to just have the part i mean the guns are fine whatever those, those can operate but where the, he just flies off the 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 crater like and, and toward the dark side of the moon it just really wrapped itself up so quickly that i did not care for that scene yeah i'm with you like i said i have to imagine that that was a post-production reshoot because again nothing ever came of it it didn't really touch the rest of the movie it was just yeah we need we need a a moon fight put that in and that could have been one of the empty there was a lot of empty foreshadowing is what i call it in this movie and it left thoughts of what could have been a better movie for me at at times it seemed like they were trying to set it up that this is some dystopian future or that there's a massive worldwide conspiracy going on well, and really in that scene, his mentor needed to be taken out, too. So that was a purpose it might have served, where he just needed some reason to not continue on the journey. Yeah, I mean, I guess, and they don't really explain it very well. He had some sort of heart palpitation or heart failure or something. As far as I can tell, he was never shot. It looked like Brad Pitt was maybe shot and his suit was leaking air or something, I think. But it was it wasn't made super clear why he couldn't continue on or or not why he couldn't continue on but what caused his you know failing heart or whatever and then he just sort of handed him information that was classified and you weren't he it was ambiguous as to which side the uh colonel i believe it was colonel um which side he was on because he was sent there to watch over McBride and then he just hands him classified information that's like, no, you need to know this. That that was bizarre. I'm with you there. 
It was bizarre, and, and it seemed like that's where they were setting up this sort of dystopian conspiratorial movie, where it's like, oh, your dad is actually maybe a good guy, and you can't trust SpaceCon or whatever. It it didn't fit, and they didn't pay off that, that foreshadowing at all. It wasn't clear how he got this classified information, and he could just plug it in. Like, I, I don't know. that I took issue with just his involvement in the movie. Um, because it it didn't really serve a purpose other than to set up mystery that they're not, that's not going to get paid off. Yeah, something else that was similar, but again, I was able to sort of reconcile it in my mind was the scene with the monkeys. I again, learning later about the reshoots, maybe that's part of what that was. It also struck me that, like you said, there was foreshadowing that didn't come to pass, which was kind of interesting. Subverting expectations always interests me a little bit, but when uh, McBride almost takes over the ship, when they're answering the Mayday call and they say, you can take over, obviously you outrank us. However, if you do that, you're going to have to tell us your uh, mission directive, which to be honest, I don't know whether or not that's true. I, I'm not, I'm not up on space law, so I don't know how accurate that is, <laughs> but then he doesn't do it. And then the captain dies. So in my mind, as soon as the captain dies, I'm like, oh, okay, that means that, you know, he's going to go back and then take control of the ship. And then he's going to have to tell them anyway, because he's not going to hand it back to the co-pilot because he has already identified that the co-pilot is scared and he doesn't feel like the co-pilot probably is fit to lead. And then it didn't pay off that way, (laughs) which was weird to me. And then I, I, I feel like maybe what it was was actually to one to have an action scene and and then the way that he talks about it later where he talks about the rage that he sees in the monkey and how he's like oh, I've seen it in myself was interesting because again he's prior to this seemed so you know stoic and don't let your emotions get to you kind of thing and so it was interesting to see him start to accept the fact that he, he has felt these things and and it's kind of like a space odyssey or 2001 space odyssey how they have the uh, apes at the beginning and that's kind of meant to show like the evolution of man but how we're still very close to to apes and so you know we consider ourselves different cuz you know we're smarter than our animal counterparts or whatever but there's still this primal rage that McBride was feeling and maybe part of the message was that some of the only differences between humans and animals is that we can control these emotions like McBride generally does. And I mean, maybe that's to show that we should control our emotions only in moderation. We should be allowed to feel things. And I mean, not just young McBride, but also his father, they both do that. And again, beyond moderation, they control their emotions and beyond just that. The other thing different between us and the animal kingdom is our our ability to control our environment and so it's and i mean they kind of show that with this weird like i don't know it's like a maybe a paradox and kind of oxymoronic like that these baboons in the state of the art research facility in space and they're the only living things there it was this weird paradox where it's like you know that's not where they naturally live but humans can sort of naturally live there and while we are very similar, there's also this divide of being different. So I, it felt like maybe it was meant to compare and contrast things. But again, maybe I'm giving them too much credit there. I feel like you might be. Who knows? Uh, I That scene just was off-putting for a number of reasons. And I was rolling my eyes at the prior 
exchange between the crew and him, so I had missed that these monkeys were test subjects. So I thought that the plot of this film was then that monkeys are taking over the galaxy uh, for a brief moment in time, because apparently these monkeys are just uh, amazingly strong and, and okay to live there and, and can kill all the humans that were there, uh, including the captain. So it, it, it they clearly was trying to set up tension, and it didn't go much further than that for me. The CGI of the monkey looked really bad, in my opinion. Uh, it didn't look at least too convincing. Uh, so I, I didn't love that part either. I, everything just took me out of the film at that point. Uh, and then when he went back and talked about the rage, to me it was it was very jarring. A, because to me... Pitt's performance was okay enough, I guess. I, I thought the acting was somewhat flat, but that was just my interpretation. The narration was very, very flat. I almost felt like he phoned it in at times. It was, it felt very monotone. So when he was talking about this rage that he's never once displayed in the movie in a very flat and monotone way, it, I just wasn't convinced. It was like he was trying to set up this internal growth through the narration. Uh, and... The thing with art that's cool is that you can perceive things two different ways. Not every movie's for everyone. Uh, so it's it's nice to see you got something out of that. But for me, it was just the way it was presented, in my interpretation, it, it didn't it didn't work at all. Uh, and that that's probably a critical moment where our opinions started to shift. Yeah. Is the perception of that line, I think. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, speaking to, I again, you didn't particularly like the narration, I didn't love it, but again, I liked it as a conduit for storytelling here where it wasn't straight narration, but it's through these psych evals, which I know you you have some specific issues with. But looking at it as a, a conduit for storytelling, I'll admit it's a bit lazy because it, again, is just having your character tell how he's feeling versus showing it, which is is done Okay, I feel like Pitt did did a decent job of showing uh, his emotional state, but it was further explained. So it was a weird mix of the two. But it it was interesting because it leads to questions about whether or not he's a reliable narrator, which can, again, kind of change your perspective of the movie. Like, are his motivations for what he's doing true? Like, he keeps talking about, I will see this mission through to completion, and do they change over time? And you can kind of hear them change over time as he alters the way he answers some of the questions, and I, it also leads you to the question, like, how much of what he's saying does he believe? And again, also notice that changing slightly over time based on how his motivations seem to change in what he's saying. Um, <coughs> excuse me. I mean, the evaluations are apparently necessary every so often. Again, I, another issue I'm sure you take with it that I don't love either is that they're never particularly explained. I assume it's just that Space Corps requires that all of their personnel, I guess, do regular psych evaluations um, to make sure that space isn't doing anything super negative to them. Uh, but again, it's interesting that he's not talking to the viewer so much as to a government or his superiors through the evals. 
and that we get kind of an insight into what he feels is significant to tell them versus what we see from him. So rather than, you know, omniscient narrators who just tell everything to the viewer because there's no repercussions to them if they're telling the viewer versus here, he sometimes does have to be measured in what he says because he knows who's on the other side. And speaking to him being flat, I think he was flat. And it leads me to a question that's this. This was very 2001, which was something that I did and didn't like. And I can guess that you probably didn't love this. But in 2001, there's a lot of technology that just isn't really explained. It's just backdrop set pieces. And one of those in this was the little patch that he kept having on his neck that he would like put on and remove. At first I thought that, I, I mean, I still think it's this, like I flipped back and forth a couple times. I think that it was to help regulate his heart rate and emotional state, which is, again, they have this whole thing about your heart rate has never gone above 80 beats per minute or whatever. And I think that patch helps to maybe regulate it. And that because, again, he sort of mentions that he's prone to fits of rage and fits of rage and emotional outbursts. Sometimes I wonder if he just like uses the patch to numb it or something. There's another time where I thought maybe it was being used to like fake his way through psych evals, like using that somehow interfered or something. I don't know. But there was that. There were a couple other interesting instances of technology not being explained, which was, again, kind of cool. It harkened back to 2001. Um, it It didn't necessarily add any points for me, but it certainly didn't subtract anything for me. It was just an interesting kind of homage to 2001, I felt like. My problem with the psychology evaluations was not that they existed, because actual astronauts need to have these conferences with actual psychologists every ever so often uh, in real life. And and so that was somewhat adjacent to what actually happens. And beforehand, they go through rigorous psychological screenings. And if all the obsession is about making sure these people are psychologically fit, I'm amazed that the co-pilot passed everything in all these evaluations afterwards, too, because he was very clearly jittery, nervous, and not capable of doing those sorts of things. Um, but my biggest problem is, A, this obsession with 90 beats per M being like consistent with your psychology, because that's just not true. You can have a very high heart rate and a good psychological state and vice versa. You could be absolutely full of rage and, and be below a certain threshold. So they, there's no way that that's a measurement of your psychological well-being, although there's a correlate there. And also having it be AI. There was actual no evaluation going on. There was no discussion. He was just talking into a device that was pretty much recording everything and then saying, okay, you are good to go, I guess. It it was almost more psychologically traumatizing the questions and process than it would be helping. And, and as far as all NASA's plans are right now, they never plan on getting rid of that human psychology evaluation because uh, it's so much better than AI, especially the AI in this movie. It wasn't even meant to be a a super intelligent AI, just sort of a a talking device, and there was no real follow-up there. So that was frustrating to me, and it also cuts into the other uh, uh, foreshadowing that didn't really pay off the way you were expecting, which to me is slightly different than this subverting expectations, but it was when he was trying to contact his dad, and... The second time, he just gave the authentic 
spiel, which of course was coming after how rigid and terrible the first one was. Um, but they got the contact, and then all of a sudden he was really upset, and they made it seem like, oh, something nefarious is going on. His dad was actually a good guy, and now they're going to go and do something to him because his dad contacted them. Um, and that set up the whole, your heart rate's above 80 or 90 beats per minute, so you need to go into this chamber. Uh, and, and here's where you're going to meet a government employee and tell classified information, even though you're in this calm box. You can leave that box, apparently, and also sneak your way onto a plane that's about to erupt, and you're not going to melt, and your skin's not going to rip off, and you're going to sneak onto this plane and kill people. Like, it just it set off this huge chain of events that I wasn't, for me, just did not fit well together. Yeah, I can see that. And, and again, speaking to the science being poor, that was one that really, that was the big one that pulled me out, is that he's climbing up into the rocket while the thrusters are getting ready to go and maybe launching. I mean, he's not being super well tracked as far as I could tell when that was all happening. So maybe the argument could be made that he had already made his way onto the ship, but it wasn't, it wasn't well shown. And yeah, absolutely. Like as soon as those even start to fire, he's dead. He's very, (laughs) very dead. Um, The trip to get there was, kind of weird but it led to some of my favorite shots in the movie which was him and the martian lake i guess she called it a lake and i guess it's liquid but i don't know if it's necessarily water (laughs) it was it was really kind of cool the claustrophobic like you again you saw an imax you had even more space than me you've you know you've got this massive screen and yet you get only this like very small vignette of light and it's him moving through the utter darkness which again is kind of cool one just cinematically and two speaking to him being like kind of confined and again at that point like you said his psyche valves or whatever have started to change and he's having these outbursts again and so it's him trying to pin himself down again a little bit more like bring bring my emotions back in line remember that i'm here for the mission i'm trying to complete this mission that's why i'm boarding this spaceship to finish the mission that i said i started not to do anything with my dad and again part of part of this movie is his internal conflict there i feel like and so i don't know i I really like those shots if the science clearly wasn't there for those <laughs> that that's a fair way to look at it it's sort of like a regrounding element going through the water there even if it was strange how we got there and, and all that sort of thing and they didn't really follow up with what happened with that uh that mars woman i don't believe uh and that was something i, I would have liked to see at least uh, but you know that that scene where he gets back on and everyone dies that actually so now i'd get to the part of the movie where i liked but it's sandwiched in between the two parts i hate the most which is the very ending and then that scene with the him getting on the plane and the path to get there um because all of these these crew members die he kills all of them well i mean to be fair at least one of them dies not necessarily because of his fault they shouldn't have they shouldn't have unbuckled i guess that's one death that was not really his fault but related to him being there um but then he, he goes to find his dad which is where the meat of this film is and thematically it's about his quest to find his father and all these expectations and and 
to me, even, I didn't like anything until he started talking to his dad about his dad's perception of what his journey was, how he felt like it was this failure. Uh, I'm actually going to let you take this because you had some interesting uh, theoretical breakdowns and then I'll just chip in. Well, I mean, there's, there was a lot there. And before we even get to that, I want to talk about one line that, that impacted maybe not me specifically a lot, but I think it added a lot to the movie, which was, as he's going in his like little pod to the actual ship that his father was on the Lima project ship or whatever, he says this, now this is pod racing. <laughs> yeah. Which also PS, that was what I thought you were talking about. There's the moment where like another pulse hits and the whole pod shakes that CGI looked horrific from where I was sitting. Maybe it was just me, but that looked so bad. No, that, <laughs> that one too. <laughs> um, but anyway, as he's like, gearing up to go see his father he says the son suffers the sins of the father which i i wish they'd explored more deeply i mean there's a number of perspectives that you could take on it but i i specifically heard it as a reference to an actual biblical line from if you're interested ezekiel uh, 18 uh, verses 19 and 20 yet you ask why does the son not share the guilt or sins of his father since the son has done what we what is just and right and has been careful to keep all of my decrees he will surely live the one who sins is the one who will die the child will not share the guilt of the parent nor will the parent share the guilt of the child the righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them and that kind of that that soon thereafter is where roy has a turning point where he realizes that he is so much like his father who says, you know, I never cared about you. I was so focused on my work and I couldn't care any less about you or your mother. I knew I was leaving and I was never coming back and I was happy with it. This is where I belonged kind of thing. And Roy has that turning point of realizing I've been doing the same thing. I've been quashing these emotions down. I've been so focused on, you know, ready to do my best to complete this mission in its entirety and realizing that, despite the fact that, you know, he keeps being told his father's a hero. And I think he kind of believes that that's where he separates uh, himself. And uh, he, he again is thinking, excuse me, about the things that he hates in uh, himself that he hates, has always hated in his father, even though he's never been willing to admit them. You know, again, the narrow-minded focus on the uh, work, the emotional outbursts, the ineptitude to relate to people and humanity at large. I mean, we get that in kind of the the first scene where he's up on the tower and someone pats him on the shoulder and he, in his like little internal monologue narration says, don't touch me because he doesn't really like or know how to interact with people. And, and again, I, I think you can see this a little bit more when he tries to save the captain of the ship who was attacked by the space monkeys, like by duct taping over the broken part of the mask, which may or may not work. But when he brings him back, the people tell him, like, no, he's already dead. Like, he was dead there. And it's because Roy was, I think, having difficulty dealing with his emotions and dealing with death and and realizing that he was letting down someone on his team. And he tried to fix this problem, even though there was no problem to fix. And I don't know, the, the whole thing just sort of spoke to me about, like, like I talked about earlier dogmatism and just being so focused on your mission. And there's only one thing to do. And 
Roy has it a little bit, but the Clifford McBride storyline is the one that really has it like his inability to accept his failure, you know, and, and I know you had a lot of notes on that. Yeah, because it was this perception. And, and this is where the movie's introspection got interesting to me is is his dad was talking about how he felt like a failure because he discovered nothing. He didn't discover the life he was searching for. And and he was even still focusing on how they could continue that journey. He, he had done something to his crew and and he was clearly insane, but he was like, oh, son, we could be that team and maybe we could have been all along. Like, he was still so focused on getting this task done. And, and I wrote out something uh, that's really silly, but it, it fits. And it's, you, you're missing out on beauty in a relentless quest to do something and actually doing is something, but feeling like you didn't do anything. Well, I was going to say, yeah. And I mean, it's missing out on beauty is a really good way to put it because when Roy goes back and gets all of that data that his father collected, he talks about how his dad had like cataloged thousands of other worlds. And it shows some of these really cool pictures that I don't know offhand, but I'd be interested to see if some of those pictures are like from the Hubble or something that the really cool ones mm. of various planets. But again, it was all this beauty and supposedly all this data talking about all of these planets, but his dad had been so focused on the one thing he was looking for, life, that he hadn't found that he thought the whole mission was a failure when, no, all of that data could have helped humanity so much and taught them so much. But again, this this dogmatic focus on I have to find exactly what I'm looking for blinded him. And he really lost his life and a lot of people lost their lives in his quest to find some life. And, and so it was really introspective. Um, and, and that was kind of really stuck on me. It's like that song Look On Up by Reliant K. Uh, but, you know, just looking at the world around you, being in the moment and realizing that A, your quest isn't always uh, the most important thing, and, and also that your quest can be fulfilled by a way you don't expect. He, he had been trying to find life and didn't discover it, but not discovering something is just as valid of a discovery as discovering something. Because you're finding out things along the way and you're finding, okay, well, this thing isn't applied here or doesn't exist here. And this sort of relates to things like publication bias and other scientific issues, file drawer, drawer problems, where really only people caring care about finding effects or effects that exist. But, but finding out something doesn't exist is, is a really valid discovery. At least it doesn't exist in the context that you searched. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, what's whether or not it's necessarily true, the old saying that, you know, Thomas Edison tried hundreds of times before he before he invented the light bulb. He tried so many times to get it right. I mean, that's what science is. A lot of the time, you're not going to get something correct right away or you're not going to find exactly what you're looking for. But like you said, the things you discover along the way are sometimes just as, if not more important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the the falsification and... And just the beauty of scientific inquiry. So I thought philosophically, this is where the movie got most interesting was talking, not even his interactions with his father, but when he went to go collect the data and he was pondering about his father and, and that journey and, and what it, it looked like to him from his perspective. Uh, I, I did enjoy that element. And th that's where the movie redeemed itself a, a fair amount before the very, very end, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, again, he, McBride, Clifford McBride, thought that he was a failure because he didn't 
find life beyond the earth or whatever. But the, the real failure here, like I said, was his unrelenting resolve to, I don't know if I'm going to get this quote exactly right, but he said something like prove science wrong by sheer force of will. Again, that's not science. You, you can't do that. Like you have to understand what you're looking at and recognize that sometimes there are things that you just can't do because they're beyond your control. And it's used primarily in a scientific manner in this movie. But again, you can apply that to so many facets of your life. And I think that is one of the big take home messages here. That's very true. And and the good way to look at it. And it was disappointing to me that the movie had to end the way it did. And this is where audiences, I think got the most upset. Uh, Some audiences bursted out laughing. Mine was just a collective WTF. Uh, some dubbed this movie the cure for insomnia because it ends on this narrative note, which pros or cons to that. But it just seems like everything's resolved and, and there's no real explanation. So he, I mean, I didn't even know if this problem was valid to begin with. Some human technology and Neptune is causing ripples throughout the entire solar system. I'm not going to critique on that. But he gets home after a bunch of questionable deeds, including being responsible for involved with the murder of several people. And it seems like everything's okay at the end of that. And I don't know why there was no follow up. Everything resolved super quickly. He called his, I think ex-wife or wife or girlfriend. I, I I don't fully remember. And it seems like that's going to sort itself out. Um, And I, I just would have really liked more explanation on how he was okay with the law and really that quest to get right with that woman because he had realized that he was following in his father's footsteps and he split and separated from his work this one solo quest and he started to, it seems like, enjoy life. And so he was trying to make amends in that process, but it just, it really missed a critical opportunity there to to see how that resolved. Yeah. Uh, there wasn't a lot of resolution. I agree with you there that I, I had some of the same questions where he, yeah, I'm like, he murdered some people and I get that this mission was super important. And does that excuse it? And I, I guess so, but it's not explored because yeah, next time we see him, it doesn't seem like it's too much longer and he's in a coffee shop and then his wife, ex-wife, whatever walks in, which is either a huge coincidence or yeah, like you said, he called her, but it was the one thing nice about that was to actually see Liv Tyler in the movie because she was barely in it, which, again, was not what the trailer led you to believe, because like she's I, I dare say that she is in the trailer more than she is in the movie. Like, if I'm completely honest, <laughs> it at least seems that way. And I mean, she in the trailer explains, you know, the pulse, the whole reason that that he is sent on this mission anyway. And they, the way that they explain it in the movie in actuality is with him in that opening scene with the fall. And like, I, that scene didn't really hit for me. I mean, it helped to set up McBride as a character a little bit, I guess, which was nice to again, see that, you know, he doesn't necessarily understand or care for humanity that much. He kind of quashes his emotions down, but there's some other weird stuff. Like his specific job is never explained. Like it looks like he's kind of a technician or something on this thing. And then suddenly he's a major later that, and he's the only one that can be sent on this mission because of his specific expertise and all of this. Uh, 
the validity of the fall seemed fairly accurate. I don't know the aerodynamics of a ripped parachute offhand, though, so don't get at me on that one. But, I mean, ultimately, that scene didn't feel like it did a lot for the plot other than explain the pulse, kind of, which, you know, they could have done a million other ways. Like, it could have just happened, or he could have been called in to, to that briefing and it started there like i think there were tons of ways they could have done this they just wanted to go with the heroic or really badass cool action sequence one which is fine or whatever again i guess they were trying to make this an action movie but like i said it was it was so interspersed with action that it kind of confused the whole movie do you have any closing thoughts here grant on what the movie was or want to say anything you haven't yet I mean, I I guess really what it comes down to is that what this movie wanted to be, I think, is Heart of Darkness in a 2001 backdrop, and it hits on some of the key elements of both very well, but it doesn't hit on either of them perfectly, and part of the problem here is, is that we already have both 2001 A Space Odyssey and Heart of Darkness as as books and films, I believe for each. So it's going to have a really hard time in light of having these predecessors that just do what it's trying to do in two different ways, singly, and they both do it better on the one path that they're on. The meld here wasn't great, although I do commend them for trying. And I do, again, like a lot of what they did, the things that were done well, I feel were done very well, like I've said a million times over, but it couldn't figure out what it wanted to be. And again, I wonder if there's a little bit of heavy handed, you know, studio play where they're like, hey, it's not actiony enough. We need more action sequences. Go back and reshoot some, which just made it a little bit confused. I much more would have liked the introspective film with the backdrop of space, especially with the silence of space. It would have been kind of cool. Do you have any closing thoughts? I had texted you and said, this is the worst movie we've seen but it's not going to get the worst score. And I'm not sure if I still stand by that, mostly because Midsommar was just so bad. But um, it, it certainly wasn't my favorite film. I don't think I'd roast it as much as some audiences did because it did some things well, and and the visuals were mostly quite good. But it's just not a movie that really needed to exist because any other category did it better in terms of visuals, in terms of science grounding in space, in terms of character exploration. Like you said, other films have have done the jobs this film's trying to fill better. And it maybe would have just been better being some generic action movie. I don't want to say that, but I don't know how much of this was that $20 million reshoot that they did, how much of it was... So this is actually one of the last movies. It's sort of a remnant of the Fox studio pre-Disney merger. So I don't know how much those studio involvements affected this movie. I know as far as it's performing at the box office, it's not going to make back its money. So maybe it's a good thing that Fox... um, merged with Disney because they sort of stumbled to the finish line between this and Dark Phoenix and and all these other movies. They did not close their studio on a strong note. That being said, this movie's not irredeemable. There's some good moments. Again, I I like some of the philosophical uh, introspections, so 
I just think that it it didn't hit a mark with me, but I could maybe see why someone would enjoy it. Well, that was an interesting and respectful discussion, <laughs> despite the <laughs> fact that we uh, didn't necessarily agree on our thoughts for the movie. So, Jacob, if people want to be on my side and tell you why you're very wrong and this is probably the best sci-fi movie since 2001, how can they get at you? <laughs> if you want to tell me how wrong I am or maybe even say a nice word, you can reach me on Twitter. My handle is at PWGJacob, the letters P-W-G-J-A-C-O-B. Mention me in a tweet, DM me, I'll get back to you. I want to hear what you have to say. And Grant, if someone wants to tell you why this movie is actually a 0 out of 10 because that parachute, ripped parachute aerodynamic was just so awful and not like real life, how can they reach you? Well, if anybody who is specifically a parachute technician that knows exactly why that would have killed him wants to explain the the ins and outs of that physics to me, please do, because I don't understand it, and I'd be very interested to. <laughs> you can also get at me on Twitter at PWGGrant, that is P-W-G-G-R-A-N-T. If you want to get in touch with the podcast at large, please email us at 35millimeterpod at gmail.com. That's 35mmpod at gmail.com. The podcast is on both iTunes and Spotify. I assume you're listening on one of those. If not, you're listening on Podbean, in which case you probably have a device that can listen to it on iTunes or Spotify if that's easier for you. So check it out. Please let your friends know. Leave a rating. That would be fantastic for us. Uh, we really appreciate you guys listening, and we will see you all next week. 35mm Perspective is a Players with Game production. All opinions within the podcast are our own. Michael Campos is our composer. All rights reserved.